Hello everybody. Good afternoon. I hope all of you have enjoyed your own vacations. And now it's time to get back to our tracks. So, group 1 will be resuming their seminar presentations and in the last class we dealt with Rushdie's short story The Prophet's Hair from the short story collection East West. Today, we will be dealing with the first story of the second section of the book. and that is west the title of the story is yorick i hope all of you are familiar with the title come on guys do you remember where we've heard this name yeah you got it right it's the court jester of hamlet's god whose skull was recognized by junior hamlet in the famous and most philosophical brave digger scene of shakespearean tragedy hamlet Salman Rushdie is mostly known for his usage of new techniques especially those of postmodernism in his short story collection East West besides many postmodern techniques such as pastiche parody and metafiction his focus on metacriticism is apparent in the short story title Yorick Rushdie's Yorick is based on an invented story about the character Yorick a dead clown whose skull prince hamlet handles and makes his famous speech in hamlet referring to theoretical criticisms of hamlet such as psychoanalysis and social theories rushdie uses criticism of literary criticism in his short story yorick he adds has postmodern interpretation into the analysis of literary criticism since antiquity rushdie here has managed to rewrite shakespearean hamlet by presenting before us young hamlet also called as amletus who of course is jealous of his father and a twist introduced in here is that the beautiful ophelia is wife of the court jester yorick and He is shown as having hatred towards Ophelia that is Hamlet is shown as having hatred towards Ophelia so basically this is the plot and the entire story revolves around how he takes revenge by using Yorick as an instrument to carry out his misdeeds the jester Yorick although foolish is made yet more foolish jealous and thereby takes vengeance in between we come across Fortinbras and Gertrude's and Senior Hamlet's called here as Horventilis their strategies to eliminate Fortinbras Rushdie combines two worlds of creativity and criticism creative metacritic in view of his metafictional story Yorick in his short story collection East West being the first story in West part Rushdie employs a different point of view in Yorick towards Shakespeare's Hamlet by putting the dead gesture Yorick of Shakespeare's Hamlet into the center of the story the story is built as a double voice text in which various texts or writing practices are examined from the perspective of their influence and the possibility of their renewal through destruction Rushdie writes alternative explanations of Hamlet's story presenting the deeds of Hamlet and using overt and covert references to some of the criticisms of the play 
That's why Rushdie's Yorick, in which Shakespeare's main themes, revenge, madness, and suicide, are rewritten. In the beginning of the story, the narrator explains that the origin of the story has been found, thank the heavens, on a material known as strong willum. As the tail of a piece of willum boasts the tail of the willum itself and the tail inscribed thereupon, it aims to eliminate many dark points in the story of Hamlet. Being a voluminous history, the story has been preserved by the family of York and it brings a new perspective to the Hamlet of William Shakespeare. The metaphor of William or parchment signifying the ways in which the subject is written and overwritten through multiple and contradictory discourses invites the reader to think about the earlier critical readings of Yorick, the character. Reviving the originality of a text with the metaphor of William, Rushdie defends the non-existence of not only any pure text but also any single interpretation. Rushdie punningly calls attention to the voluminous scholarship devoted to the textual history of Hamlet as well as to the critical discourse attendant to the play. In this respect, Rushdie's deliberate usage and reinterpretation of the elements of Shakespeare's Hamlet together with notions from the critical tradition and metaliterary reflections makes the short story a work of creative metacriticism. While depicting the prehistory of Shakespeare's story narrating Prince Hamlet's childhood when he was seven and his relation both to Yorick and other characters in those times, Rushdie has included critical reflections which seem to be addressed to those readers who are acquainted with the diverse interpretations of the play as well as with literary theory. The narrator of the story explains that his present intent is not merely to abbreviate but, in addition, to explicate, annotate, hyphenate, palatinate and permagnate for its a narrative that richly rewards the scholar who is competent to apply such sensitive technologies. In the story, both the narrator and the reader are accepted as literary scholars in a way who are well aware of the critical reviews of Hamlet. However, the point is that the mentioned scholar is both invited into the interpretation process and is marked at some points of the shorty story. The aim is mostly related to the idea of trustworthiness of both fiction and literary criticism that will be explained in detail. Giving the implications of various literary criticism such as psychoanalytic criticism, criticisms related to social, post-colonial and reader response theories, Rushdie tests the validity of them within a dialogue with the reader. In the beginning of the story, the challenging question is again, what is Hamlet's problem? And its answer is brought back to a Freudian reading in the first place. Hamlet is pictured as a lonely child 
deprived of parents' love because of their political affairs. By substituting his clown Yorick and his wife Ophelia as surrogate parents, Rajdi's Hamlet feels a certain fascination and also hatred for Ophelia and a pure hatred for Yorick. However, his detestation of Ophelia is not clearly explained as Rajdi wants to throw suspicion on the trustworthiness of the demystification of psychoanalytic criticism that dates the subject's fixations back to his childhood. It's sure he hated Ophelia, but for what? Could it have been her body that was not his to command? At seven, Prince Amblitus is disturbed by something in this girl, but cannot give its name. So childish ardor turns to hate. Instead of a single explanation, the narrator presents three motives for his hatred. Perhaps all three, her stink, her theft of Yorick's heart, for as any fool knows the heart of a fool is his prince's possession. For who but a fool would surrender his heart to a prince? And yes, her beauty too. So the three main motives for his hatred towards Ophelia is her sting, her theft of Yorick's heart, and her beauty. According to the narrator, there is no need to choose and we should be gluttonous in our understanding and swallow this frenity whole. Referring to psychoanalytic plot and psychoanalytic criticism, Rushdi as a creative metacritic takes advantage of both literature and criticism, opening literary criticism for discussion. Without placing a premium on one single interpretation, the narrator continues to weave the plot around, Ophi, sorry, around Oedipus complex. When young Hamlet, hidden behind the arras, witnesses the lovemaking scene between King Horventilus and the Queen, he misunderstands that his father is trying to kill his mother. Thus, he attempts to save her without foreseeing that he will be punished by the king for his deed and be thrashed as a result. Furthermore, the king beats something into the prince's hide. It is hatred and dark dreams of revenge. This experience is also presented as the archaic cause that lies behind Hamlet's motive to murder Polonius hiding behind the arras. And so, it may be said of him that in later life he his child self's memory lurking in this place grown hoary and colonial in form. Being Hamlet's problem around as Oedipus Rushdie forms not only a new plot that is mostly related to psychoanalytic criticism, but also criticism of it as he problematizes, sorry, problematizes the earlier psychoanalytical origin of Hamlet's problem.
first cause of Hamlet's deed is stated in the Velam, the narrator who descends from Yorick does not mention it. In fact, the critic's aim is traditionally to speculate on the most probable first cause of any problematic in a narration. However, the narrator of Yorick believes that to narrate a story as it completely happened with a pure mimesis will be a kind of insult to the reader or the interpreter. The narrator would be rash to treat our reader as if he were a fool, if she or he did so. Although the reason of Hamlet's mistreatment of Yorick are written in Velum, listing in gruesome detail all the crimes committed by the prince against the jester's person, complete with intimizations of cause-effect. The narrator does not recount them, but just gives various alternative psychoanalytic implications. Thus, the narration opens the way for different interpretations and criticisms without verifying their validity, which brings to mind the reader response theory. Rushdie's second metacritical approach is towards the social theories that scrutinize power relations in terms of public affairs, 
depicting the scene of a fest in the court, he refers to the political issues and power relations that found the tragedy in Hamlet, besides any familial defects giving rise to psychoanalytic interpretations. The transition from the borders of psychoanalysis to politics is defined as follows. I have till now endeavored to tell a delicate tale of private character with many fine touches of psychology and much material detail still I can no longer keep the great world from my pages for what ended in tragedy began in politics. This statement gives the basic elements that lies behind tragedy whose history goes back to public and political matters. Connecting po political affairs with the theory of tragedy, Rushdie eliminates another debate on a critical subject. Referring to the strategical approaches of Gertrude and Horventilus to eliminate Fortinbras, the narrator emphasizes the significance of power discourses in the story. However, with a quick deviation, the narrator falsifies this political discourse as well and turns back to the feeling of absence in Hamlet. It does not matter. I have lingered at the banquet only to explain why this Queen Gertrude, overoccupied by diplomacy, beset by several types of meat, was unable to go upstairs and wish her son good night. Still, with a second deviation, this time the narrator falsifies the established psychoanalytic truths in terms of Hamlet's lack. I quote, Where is the fellow who can portray an absence? A boy shown horizontal in his coat and subject to the tergiversations ter and other frenzies characteristic of insomnia may nevertheless be taken for a child plagued by a flea or fevered or surly at being forbidden the grown-up's table or practicing his swimming in this textile sea or gee knows what for I don't, I unquote. Proposing explanations for what is really happening in the story and in Hamlet's mind, Rushdie questions the validity of any critical approach to decipher the embedded reality. That is to say, the claim to reveal the reality in a fictional work with the help of literary theories is problematized by Rushdie. In this respect, he reminds the criticism of Karl Popper of psychoanalysis and Marxist theory which should not be accepted as scientific approaches to reveal reality. Popper criticizes the principle of verification of logical positivism to make a distinction between real science and metaphysics. He believes that neither Marxist social criticism nor Freudian psychoanalytic theory could be accepted as the demystifiers of reality because they are not applicable to the principle of falsification. To him, if it is not possible to falsify an argument, its validity can never be scientifically approved. In this respect, as any psychoanalytic argument cannot be falsified, namely a psychoanalytic case is open to various, even contradictory interpretations, it is not possible to talk about its validity. At this point, a similar approach appears in Yorick, 
when the narrator's various psychoanalytic arguments about Hamlet's motives and their falsification with each other undermine the validity of any psychoanalytic reading. However, Rushdie's approach is unlikely to test psychoanalysis or label psychoanalytic criticism as non-scientific. Contrarily, Rushdie appreciates the coexistence of various arguments and multiple realities both in literary work and criticisms of it. Thus, plying between different fictional realities and metacriticisms, he leaves the reader with an abundance of interpretations and misinterpretations with the help of his narrator. This kind of a creative metacriticism places demands on the reader and forces a reading of a professional kind. In Yorick, Rushdie covertly brings post-colonial metacriticism into question. At this point, a difference between post-colonial criticism and post-colonial metacriticism should be made. The interpretation of Yorick in terms of post-colonial criticism argue that this story is writing back to the Western canon. For instance, Nogiria accepts the rewriting of Hamlet as a particular point in which I quote, the oppressed group is allowed to remake the world through the word, unquote. However, according to Kabardia, though the post-colonial Shakespeare scene has been a rich way for writers and critics seeking to gain power over a colonial discourse that used literature, rush these intentionally in the textual narratives with their manifold literary and cultural references challenge the presumed immutability of Shakespeare. Namely, in Yorick, Rushdie goes syncretism, transforms into multiple criticisms and criticism of them in this sense. While Rushdie's cultural mixture and cultural impurity are clearly reflected in his story collection East-West, it turns into a critical mixture and a critical impurity in Yorick. With Yorick, it is apparent that he conveys a similar opinion about the necessity of a fragmented vision of literary criticism as well. As a whole site is not possible in the construction process of his story, it is not possible in literary criticism either. Therefore, both the reader of his story and the reader of any criticism on this story are liberated to choose among a variety of texts or to make a combination of all. Rushdie proposes his metafiction and metacriticism with Yorick in terms of the liberation of the reader to conceive all the texts as acceptable. In this respect, his manifesto appears towards the end of the story. I quote, In this, it's true my history differs from Master Chakpo's and ruins at least one great soliloquy. I offer no defense but this, that these matters are shrouded in antiquity and there is no certainty in them, so let the versions of the story coexist, for there is no need to choose. I unquote. Thus, instead of a single unified historical narrative and in a similar way a single unified critical narrative, Rashti opens the way to choice and interpretation. His text plays reductive games with the reader creating a literary image of folly and stimulating a response on various interpretive 
levels. Rushdie implies the possible validity of freedom response theory in literary criticism. So, as a story that should be read as the story of within a discourse on literary theory and criticism. In Yorick, Rushdie associates the 17th century Hamlet to its following criticisms that give him the opportunity to reflect his understanding of literary criticism in general. First of all, the idea Rushdie gives to the reader is that a literary work is as much valuable as it opens the way for the readers to question a text within its subtext. To decipher the writer's intention, to resolve the reasons behind her or his motive, to create a certain character or event, to arrive at an ultimate interpretation about the character and their motives are of secondary importance. In Yorick, Rushdie as a creative metacritic cross-questions whether the author or the critic has the authority to attribute an absolute meaning to a fictional work and he suggests with his story that neither of them has the full authority. Instead, a brainstorm occurring with the attendance of the writer, the critic and the reader, even the earlier and future readers of the text is in question. Furthermore, the attendance of the readers into the process of interpretation makes them critics in the sense. Rushdie accepts each reader as a critic, making a comment on a certain text and depicts her or his significant role in interpretation and criticism. In Yorick, the narrator's consistent self-edition challenges the idea of the completeness and reliability of criticism and the final world. This notion that could be named critic fallibility problematizes the universal consent of existing theories or criticism and problematizes the applicability of them all to each text. Rushdie making critics, fa critics fallibility a current issue in the story problematizes the objectivity of any theory's validity such as psychoanalysis or social theories. In this respect, using irony, he makes the reader question the established theories and criticisms. The velum, which is not wholly to be relied upon in this regard is a representative of unreliability of any text. Rushdie argues, some things may never be known, although self-reliant criticism of argues it may be. However, when he problematizes the objectivity of literary criticism, he does not propose to make it removed totally. On the contrary, he reflects the significance of literary criticism and critical texts in providing an intertextual understanding. And he proposes to accept the world of criticism as an increasing resource. Thinking on a literary work within its critical text makes the process much more performative. In this sense, he uses critical electicism that David Lodge finds significant in literary criticism because critical methods should not be accepted as completing with each other, sorry, competing with each other, but instead as complementing each other. At that point, the involvement of writer, the critique and the reader in a literary text will result in the creative intellectual performance. 
In this respect, although literary criticism is not scientific, it is definitely a creative art. Thus, contrary to Hamlet's speech on mortality with Yorick's skull in his hand in Act 5, Scene 1, Rajdi's Yorick signifies immortality of literature that could be obtained via never-ending criticism of the play. So that's all about Salman Rushdie's short story Yorick. I hope you have 